Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Back in the saddle once more. How are you feeling about it, Carly? <laughs> I'm tired. You're tired. How was your time away? It was all right. It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it feels like it's been a long time. It hasn't been that long since the listeners last heard our voices. It's been a little over two weeks, I guess. And in that time, we've still had a handful of episodes of other people's shows mm-hmm. come out with with our voices on them. Yeah. Uh, and I got to say, like, I, I, we missed you, dear listener. We really did. Uh, but it was nice not being here for a couple weeks. It was nice getting the, t- the chance to recharge, recalibrate, uh, so we could come back refreshed, rejuvenated, renewed to these conversations. It was also really nice watching movies without taking notes. It was really nice watching movies <laughs> without taking notes. Yeah, that's like a, yeah, I, you forget how, that, how nice that is. That's my disease. That's my sickness. <laughs> I don't take notes. You don't. While don't watching do it. Uh, the movie itself. I, well, I also tend to have a little bit more free time than you, which is one thing. You do. Mm-hmm. So I uh, sometimes will watch the movie unencumbered uh, and then return to the movie and watch it again whilst taking some notes or skipping around to particular scenes and finding things I would like to talk about. A little more time searing the edges of my of my thought stake, if you will. <laughs> it's medium rare. It is. <laughs> um, but we've got a really good one today for you, folks. So good. So, so good. Uh, we, before we took our, our impromptu hiatus to uh, relax and recharge, we had in mind for the spooky season a theme. We were going to do vampires for the entire month. Uh, of course, that didn't pan out quite the way we wanted it to. Uh, I, you might still see us doing that theme with some of our choices and, uh, and certainly with this one, our first of the month back at it. Uh, we are talking today about Guillermo del Toro's 1993 debut, Kronos. 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 I guess it's not really an, an a rolled R. I guess it no, could be. No, it's not. It's not Kronos. an R. Kronos. Uh, but GDT first movie guy was 28 years old 28 years young really when he made it uh spanish language film as he is a mexican filmmaker one of the three amigos alongside uh inyaritu and cuaron is that racist that's the name that they call themselves oh i didn't i didn't make that up (laughs) no it it would be racist if it was coming just from from this guy's mouth but no they they refer to themselves and are known uh colloquially amongst uh, many a cinephile as the three amigos. Cute. It is pretty cute. Uh, I think uh, while Guillermo is not the most consistent out of that group, I think that that uh, goes to Cuaron. I think he's made the most uh, very good films of the entire group. Mm -hmm. I think Guillermo del Toro is my favorite. He's my favorite by a landslide. Yeah. And he is... I think the most, he's my favorite kind of storyteller out of the three of them. Say more on that. He's so passionate about the work that he does Mm. and he's so in love with the stories he tells and it's like undeniable when you watch his films and there's just something really beautiful about that and that's not to say that like 
I don't see passion and imagination in like Iñárritu or Cuarón's work. But I don't think they lead with that. No, I think that they're much more fixated on kind of a uh, a technical mastery. They They strike me as more sort of like formally engaged directors Mm -hmm. and del toro is you know very locked in on the the formal storytelling of his of his movies but i don't think that's his primary focus he is just a very human storyteller yeah you know while while the other two are and we don't have to compare them the entire time, but but while we're talking about these three filmmakers, yeah, I, I think that Inuritu has certainly become the one that's the most, I think, fixated on on the formalism, on the on the aesthetics and technicalities of the work. Quaron has done similar things, two more effective ends, I think, in his later period. Uh, Children of Men, a masterpiece. Masterpiece. Gravity, a little bit dumber, a story, but still just like an incredibly visceral and engaging like 110 minutes of movie however long it is uh but del toro is the one who i think marries the formalism with his structure with his storytelling with his narratives the best all of his works feel like he's he's a very considerate storyteller he storyboards everything um he's got a tremendous imagination he really is a visionary he is uh He's just remarkable, and and his movies have moved me more than any of those other filmmakers' movies ever have. Yeah. The more I learned about him for this episode, the more I fell in love with him. Mm. And I think I've landed squarely on him now being like one of my favorite filmmakers. Wow. Okay. And I could say that just for this movie and Pan's Labyrinth and nothing else. (laughs) Well, and we've seen together a handful of his movies. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I mean, one of the things we need to talk about before we get into this movie is just the the diminishing returns sometimes with Del Toro. Uh, He has his fixations. He has his kind of mode that he operates in. He has, you know, kind of like Victorian Gothic imagery. He's obsessed with fables and and fairy tales of a a more kind of adult caliber. You know, he's not he's not Disneyfying his stories. Mm -hmm. Um, He loves monsters as well loves of course them. loves them loves a monster well and sincerely loves his monsters he, does. he, he treats them uh, with with a great deal of empathy in his movies which makes him uh, such an interesting storyteller but uh the movie for which i think he is most recognized is the one i think is actually probably his worst movie uh the shape of water yeah i would agree with that uh, but i but i will say you know again your mileage may vary with someone like del toro he really works for me. I know he really works for you. Uh, when he's working specifically in uh, his native tongue, in the Spanish language, you know uh, it's going to be heat. Even if I didn't know Spanish, I would still just be totally moved by like the sounds of of the dialogue. Um, it's it's all beautiful, and it it adds another layer of. This is going to sound colonial and I don't want it to, (laughs) but this movie being in Spanish 
like adds another layer of kind of like magic or at least like lyricism to the movie, you know? Yes. Um, that I don't think uh, would be there if it was if it was in English or if it was dubbed. Very purposefully, the only time English is spoken is by two American capitalists. And it's like so disruptive when you hear it. Yeah. You're, you know, sort of lulled into this beautiful place with with Federico Lupi's um dialogue and and the way he delivers his lines and then all of a sudden like Ron Perlman comes out of nowhere and he's like hey guy and you're just like oh <laughs> fuck okay he's a, he's a very intrusive presence in the film uh Ron Perlman in this movie i mean how the two of them get together is i mean you know now history i guess they they have a an interesting uh, story to tell, Ron Perlman has an interview on the uh, Criterion edition of this film, uh, and so does Del Toro, about their meeting. Uh, a lot of it centered around food <laughs> when they first get together. And and just Del Toro, again, with his like level of sincerity and earnestness, just being a genuine fan and really just wanting him to be a part of his of his story. He saw Ron Perlman's face and was like, I need that guy yeah. in a movie. He's a he's a real <laughs> life monster. Like he, he really is. He has that kind of face. Uh, I know that we we have differing opinions on Ron Perlman. Uh, I, I love the guy. I think he's just like he's such a presence. I've, I've grown up with a lot of movies that I've loved with him in them. Um, and have, my appreciation for him has only deepened the, the longer his career has gone on. My distaste for him is totally illogical and like completely personal. Like it has nothing to do with like him or like his talent as an actor. And it has everything to do with the fact that like my first introduction to him was through one of my past boyfriends, like bullying me into watching Hellboy, but like I didn't. And like, it was always this thing and um and i just like found his face like so so aggressive um it's it's extremely aggressive it's extremely aggressive but hearing del toro talk more about him and what he admires about him as an actor and a performer um i think has made me like him more and also his performance in this movie is like so grotesque um the like you gotta hand it to him let's get into the movie itself let us do that so chronos is uh, a vampire story first and foremost but it's a modern sort of fable of vampirism notably it's a vampire story in which the word vampire is never once spoken not a once uh but this movie is its own beast while also being so kind of indebted to these very classic stories of like gothic horror and romantic kind of characters, even classic Hollywood versions of this kind of thing. It, it feels like a Mexican new wave kind of story. It's very much rooted in the environment and the politics of a modern. And when I say modern, of course, I mean early 90s Mexico uh, in a very modern setting. But it's got Cronenbergian body horror to it. It also has like the bombast and and swooniness of a like classic Hollywood monster movie. Yeah, but, really great like 
grand sets that would come with it, like a universal horror. Yes. Uh, we have been watching a couple of those recently. We just watched James Whale's Invisible Man. I'm a huge fan of his Frankenstein movies as well. They're all masterpieces. They're beautiful and lyrical. And I couldn't help but feel... Uh, del toro's love for those movies in this film at the end the final kind of confrontation on the rooftop with the lights uh behind them and and silhouetting them as they fight it it has that feeling of a a kind of grand classic hollywood universal monster showpiece it definitely does we've got to hand it to the performer at the the heart of this movie federico lupi uh who plays the lead character jesus gris uh, and what a performance it is. He does so much. He's given a lot to work with. You know, he, he has a couple of different modes to work in the monster, the sort of like meek kind of shy shopkeeper at the beginning. And then when he has sort of like more of a, uh, a liveliness to him after he uses the Kronos device. But I, I just think he's remarkable here. He's so, so good. He's so believable. Like, despite the fact that he's a fucking vampire, like he's doing a lot of like, I'm, I'm, I'm lusting. I'm kind of like itchy with lust. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm in pain. I'm, I'm mourning like all these things. And he's communicating these feelings with his body beautifully. And he also just has like a beautiful face. And so to see him like turn into this like rotting piece of meat over the course of the film is also like kind of tragic because he's a beautiful man. Um, and we get to see him in the beginning of the film, like being beautiful and like tan and having like silky, gorgeous hair and, and just like a kind face. And he's so full of love for his wife and for his granddaughter, Aurora. And, um, and so like, you're just you're predisposed to connect with him and be on his side and yes he's the protagonist but I think you know to del Toro's credit he writes this monster so humanely <laughs> he's um he's the most human person in the entire story which is a beautiful flourish uh, and indeed, the monsters are the Americans, um, the capitalists in this story. Yeah. Let's talk about them for a minute. Uh, so we've already mentioned Ron Perlman, who plays the character uh, Angel de la Guardia, Angel de la Guardia, uh, and his uncle, played by Claudio Brook, who is the sort of uh, de la Guardia senior. You sort of pick up on it within the context of the film. Uh, but hearing Del Toro talk about it, it's even more remarkable kind of what he's doing. This is a story about vampires we already mentioned. It's about vampirism. And Del Toro has been explicit about his desire to make that vampirism extend beyond just Lupi's character and the sort of traditional vampires that we think of, these sort of bloodlusting monsters of you know who, who are averse to sunlight and sleep in a coffin, what have you. The real vampires of the movie are the capitalists, as you mentioned. And uh, Del Toro has has said, you know, that this is a movie that is in part his response to uh, the anxieties he and other Mexicans were feeling about NAFTA and his perception 
and expectation that Mexico would be sucked dry. Uh, Claudio Brooks' character, like the senior de la Guardia, is a really, really fascinating, really interesting character. He's someone who uh, is horribly ill. We don't really understand exactly what he's ill with, but he's had many of his organs removed and kept in glass containers. He lives in this uh, very uh, clean very sterile environment behind several like locked doors and and has these sort of plastic covers that that uh, veil his bed. He's in a giant refrigerator. He's in a giant refrigerator. He's literally like a, a piece of meat just being preserved. Uh, and yet he is the character uh, whose desire for extended life is really the impetus for this entire story. He's the reason that uh, Federico Lupi's character first comes across this uh, golden Kronos device that he wants to extend his life. Uh, I, I just, I love this conceit. I love that there is the the political injected into this otherwise very sort of classic monster story. And it's, uh, and they really are cartoonish, you know. <laughs> uh, Del Toro has mentioned that he really wanted these characters to be a response to the sort of over-the-top cartoonish way in which Mexicans were often portrayed in American Hollywood uh, productions and, and in a lot of blockbuster cinema, that he really wanted them to be just like these caricatures of evil. He succeeds, and man, nothing gets my motor going more than Guillermo del Toro name checking nafta when he's talking about the the sort of um narrative undercurrents of his film i figured you would like that like yeah both perlman and brooke i think do a great job of being this sort of like over the top caricature of um of what like an american capitalist would be but not to the point that their characters aren't believable and that their characters don't feel like they have their own motivations and, and that they're they're not fleshed out, right? Um, importantly, Ron Perlman, he doesn't give a flying fuck about vampires or living longer <laughs> or like any sort of magical like totem or like ancient bug living inside a brooch pin or whatever. Like <laughs> he doesn't care about any of that. Yeah. He has all of it laid out to him by his uncle and by Loopy. And he's just like, I don't fucking give a shit. I just want my uncle off my ass. And we find out towards the end of the film that what he really wants is his uncle's fortune. Yes. He wants his uncle dead. <laughs> And or he wants to make him happy so that he can stop abusing him and leave him alone. Brooke in particular is not just a like dogged capitalist, you know, weirdo with money, like a billionaire weird guy. We know those those dudes well. Um, but I think it's important that he specifically is the one who is interested in defying the laws of nature. Yes. Because that is what capitalists do. <laughs> Correct. And there I mean there's such a, a beautiful flourish in this too. You know, there's there's a great scene where Federico Lupi and Ron Perlman are talking with one another. And up to this point, Perlman's character doesn't really understand 
why his uncle wants this device. He just knows that he wants it and he's happy to oblige because it keeps him in his good favor. It keeps his nose from being broken again. Uh, and it keeps him in the will. But when he finally finds out that what it is is just like a, a device that brings eternal life or ostensibly eternal life, prolonging life, uh, he he laughs and he's like, all he does is shit and piss in his little cubicle all day. Why would he want to live longer? But he does. I, I don't know. It's a flourish that, that doesn't need to be there, but it, it has so much sort of like corrupted pathos to it you know that idea of wanting to prolong things and wanting to like just uh exponentially extend and grow that is that capitalist mindset uh i i love it i think it's like a wonderful little detail uh, the other thing that i want to point out about those two characters with regards to perlman's character in particular is that i think it's really important that his character specifically refuses to speak Spanish. Yes. He speaks English <laughs> all the time, except for like two or three occasions, one of which is when he's directly threatening Loopy's life. Um, the other like one or two times is when he's like joking or like mm -hmm. he's like kind of mocking um, Loopy and his granddaughter. Um, and I just think that's a beautiful detail because you know, if we're talking about the landscape of NAFTA being ratified and del Toro anticipating a world of violence and exploitation coming to Mexico at a scale that they hadn't seen previously at the hands of white Americans, and eventually those white Americans coming to roost in Mexico, the not speaking Spanish thing is like a, a very real expression of that exploitation and that sort of like colonial relationship that white Americans have with Mexico. Yes. Uh, I told you that there's a, a good interview with Ron Perlman where he talks a little bit about the character of uh, Angel de la Guardia. And one of the things that he mentions is that he commits to the film and gets the script uh, and didn't know whether or not Del Toro wanted him to do the character in Spanish. And so Ron started working on Spanish and translating his dialogue and trying to practice and learn it and delivered some of his lines and some, you know, these monologues to Del Toro, who told him that was terrible, completely unusable. Uh, and so they decided collectively that the character, when he spoke Spanish, would do so badly on purpose. And it's it's exactly as you mentioned, like uh, that that uh, sort of character defining trait of his that he's so resentful about his existence in this place that is foreign to him, and he's so resentful of the people in that place that everything he's learned about their language and culture uh, has been. Uh, begrudgingly and so when he does it it's it's with a sense of mocking it's with a sense of kind of like hatred uh, and otherwise he just speaks very like even brutalish kind of English as well I love that there's so much texture and richness to that character uh, I also love his obsession with uh, plastic surgery 
<laughs> that he uh you know starts off and is introduced to us with these kind of weird cards that he can hold up that are, are cut to his face so he can see different kind of iterations of a nose that he will get and it it plants the seed already of us realizing that he has this sort of anticipated wealth coming his way that he can finally use to make himself and sculpt himself into the kind of person he wants to be. It also implies that his uncle will no longer be around to perpetually break his nose with his cane. Yeah. What's interesting about Angel de la Guardia is that he is a victim of abuse himself, Mm -hmm. um, but he's not sympathetic. It's important, though, that we understand that as a part of why he is the way he is. He is an angry, impish, childish, grown man. Um, and and it's because he's been abused his entire life by his uncle, presumably. Still to this very day, even as a grown man, physically abused, um, verbally abused. And he he feels stunted in a way that doesn't just sort of align with how we would sort of caricature like a a wealthy like son of industry but also that he is another expression of like this man's violence um which is sort of evident all over the film, right? The the exploitation and the violence um, that that built Della Guardia's wealth is also seen in all these other arenas of his life. The violence against his own body, mm-hmm. the violence against his family, um, and the way he treats Lupi, and uh, and I think that while. Del Toro is not asking us to side with Angel. I think he's very purposeful in creating blurred lines between good and evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, The middle of the movie is where we kind of get into after we've been introduced to these, you know, blood sucking capitalists, after we sort of kind of have seen the effects of the Kronos device, which, by the way, if we're talking about kind of del Toro trademarks, um, incredible practical effects on these things. Incredible. Uh, I, I guess del Toro's father-in-law is some sort of engineer or machinist and made like a dozen of these mechanized devices that were actual like gold-plated silver. And he used different... Uh, little motors and little like toy designs and things like that. So they had separate ones for, for the one that uh, where the, the arms kind of come out of the scarab one for when they raise and another one for when they close back up, but they're, they're all different little toys that they built. Uh, But it all feels seamless. And they're all like, it, it feels like a real kind of like engine of, alchemy in his hand that's so cool it's super cool uh by any means that so once jesus starts using that device he really starts giving off some major vampire vibes and this is where Lupi really gets to have a lot of fun we've already talked about some of his physical mannerisms and his performance that like that itching that 
agitated kind of like thirst and bloodlust that he has when he first gets pricked by it before he he puts it on again. Uh, and then there is another scene that we should talk about in detail, which happens at a New Year's party. And it is the first time that he really succumbs to this insane bloodlust that he's feeling. Uh, they're at a table at this, I don't even know what it is. It's some sort of like club. It's like a country club of of sorts that they're throwing this New Year's party at. And uh, a gentleman at a table adjacent to his and his granddaughters and his wife's gets a nosebleed and runs to the bathroom. And uh, the gentleman, you know, cleans himself up and and excuses himself. But But Jesus follows him in and there's two drops of blood, two single drops of blood, one on the sink and one on the floor. And the way that Federico Lupi plays this is so brilliant. Uh, he plays it like a drug addict. And I'm sure part of that is Del Toro's work as well. But you can you can see him. It's, it's almost like him like cutting a line of blood on the marble counter of this like pristine bathroom. Uh, and eventually, you know, it, it, it gets washed away and then he has to go one step further and, and put himself on the floor and lap up this blood. Uh, I just I think it's a really good scene. I think it's played in a way that I don't think I've seen this kind of thing played for. It, it's just such a, a direct kind of read on the idea of craving and the like addiction to blood that he's feeling. It's incredibly effective. There is a portion of the interview that I think was on the Criterion like video commentary that Del Toro did where he's talking about like how in, for example, Bram Stoker's Dracula mm-hmm. um, that Coppola directed that like, you know, Winona Ryder is this, this young maiden and, and it stands to reason that someone would want to like, suck blood from her neck like look at her that's attractive yeah and del toro talks about the fact that he wanted to show this bloodlust in a way that is it's so undeniable because it's grotesque like he wants nosebleed blood yeah yeah <laughs> and he wants to lick it off of a dirty bathroom floor and it's like he's debasing himself in order to get it brilliant it's just like so brilliant and like of course he would right like if he was a vampire and he was like overcome with this desire for blood he would see a nosebleed and like be like give me that like (laughs) i want that yeah um it's just a it's a tiny example of the way that del toro's brain works that is like so distinct and so special like he's just so thoughtful in the way that he he communicates things that are well tread in cinema like bloodlust um like heartache like grief like he just he he showcases these these feelings in his characters in ways that are wholly distinct and yet like completely familiar. Like you recognize that as like addict behavior and like 
you see it and you're like, yeah, that's that's undeniably that. Mm -hmm. Something distinct about this vampire story is that oftentimes the people who are vampires in, you know, tales of fantasy and horror, they're not good people per se. It's like they're usually like the Delaguardia type Mm -hmm. or they're. Um, you know, like an evil prince or something. Right. A, a thing that's interesting about all of those, not to interrupt you, but is that they're also all usually like wealthy. And this they're, is like a working class story of a vampire before they've... That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Jesus is not a man of means per se. He has a house and a family and, you know, a shop. He's a small business owner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. <laughs> But he's not like a a a you know rich prince like living in a castle somewhere. On top of that, he's a good man. He's a very good, decent man. And we see this from the opening frames of the movie, but we also see lots of um lots of moments of exchange between he and his wife, whom he clearly adores, Aurora, who he loves just to pieces um and and also know him to be like an honest man he's a shop owner who you know he sells antiques and he's he he makes a living um but he has this immortality thrust upon him and Mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful inversion of what we normally see in tales of vampires because he is such a good man and he's he's put in this position that he never asks for um and then has to try to figure out like what to do about it and it's such a different arc for that story um than i think we've we've seen historically and it it just rings so much more emotion out of the becoming of the monster mm-hmm. yeah he he really makes the monster monstrous and he makes us wish that this man had nothing to do with that transformation we really just don't want to see him suffer we don't want to see him succumb to this this version of himself that he's becoming uh and for a moment he gets off uh briefly uh with the cold release of death (laughs) i was Concerned about showing you this movie, I have to say, because I know that you do not do well with gore, with body horror. Not at all. Uh, and I recall the the stuff with the coroner and and his transformation <laughs> after his death and resurrection as being particularly gruesome. Uh, and it is. I, it is, as I remembered, uh, you know, a scene in which he has to use a, a, a bloody... Uh, shard of glass to cut the stitches to open his mouth up that's been sewn shut uh it's it's not the easiest watch <laughs> this part the coroner is hilarious and terrible yes this character is a perfect example of the dare i say it the whimsy that Guillermo del Toro has <laughs> yes. in his storytelling. This felt a lot like like a Jean-Pierre Jeunet film. Like it felt like something out of like a delicatessen or an Amelie, these moments. Yes, totally. He um is, you know, stapling 
he's stapling Jesus's forehead together and slapping like what is ostensibly Play-Doh onto his forehead. <laughs> yeah, flesh-colored like clay. And he's like likening himself to like Michelangelo or whatever. Like he's just like talking about like how he's an artist and he's no one understands his work and all of this stuff. Like it's so funny and so grotesque. Um, but it's like soundtracked. It's 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 scored too with kind of like this kind of like clownish music. Yeah. <laughs> um almost like a like a the sound of like a jack in the box or something. Like it's such a it's such a it's such an interesting um sequence of events. I couldn't like really watch that stuff, but I saw enough of it to appreciate what del toro was doing um for for a film that is has as much like very tactile body horror as this film does um and also a lot of like grotesqueries and violence i felt just like very comfortable in his hands the whole time Mm -hmm. which i think is like so special it's just like (laughs) i don't know how he does it but he does it and for me to say that about a horror film which i don't even know that i would necessarily like fully categorize it as that but for me to say that about a horror film but especially for me to say that about a horror film that has as much like body horror as this does i think is a testament to guillermo del toro's storytelling and also to the performances that the actors in the film give which they too navigate this line of you know sort of macabre but also like sadness and pathos and they all just do such a good job with it Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it really is brilliant stuff and especially at the back half here after the resurrection for all of guillermo del toro's wonderful qualities subtlety is not one of them (laughs) no uh jesus greece right we have a, a gentleman named jesus greece who uh dies and comes back to life after three days uh he gets a stigmata in his foot with a piece of glass uh, later on, there's a scene that, while it feels a little bit like uh, the James Wood, like putting a, a cassette tape in his stomach, a la like Videodrome, uh, it, it was actually intended to be more of a uh, a reference to uh, Thomas, the the figure in in the Passion who doubted Christ and puts his fingers in his wounds, etc. Uh, but yeah, he, he's he's not the most subtle of creators. He definitely has his sort of Catholic, his Christian sort of allegories that he likes to play with and and kind of layers it on a bit thick here. But it still works. Um, and is suffused with brilliant makeup effects in this part too. And also I think where the relationship between uh, granddaughter and grandfather really shines. Uh, the little girl, Aurora, her name, the actress's name is uh, Tamara Shanaf. Only acted in like two or three movies. Apparently has mystic powers from what Del Toro says uh, that she could see through walls and uh, perceived things on the other side of them. And Why not believe it? Why not believe it? Why not? We lose nothing believing that she's a, a mystical little girl uh, and actually adds a lot to it. It could feel very tropey having her be completely silent throughout the movie. 
And I think it's something that has been adopted by other creators to lesser ends. Um, I think specifically of a, a very modern one that got some criticism, uh, which is James Mangold's Logan, where the little girl doesn't say anything. She's mute until the very end. Uh, but in this movie, it works really well for me. It has a very classic Hollywood kind of uh, gothic horror kind of storytelling quality to it that feels like a fairy tale, right? We, we reserve her words for the very, very end of the movie when she definitively says the word abuelo. And it's the part where Jesus finally chooses to reclaim his humanity, you know, away from, from the vampire that he's becoming uh, and chooses chooses to die to destroy the device uh this is where everything gets like really weepy this is where like you started choking up (laughs) i think it's it's really beautiful stuff it's gorgeous yeah it's you don't even really notice that she's not talking in the film like they Mm -hmm. don't go out of their way to be like look this girl's mute um because there's so much expressiveness between the two of them um and their relationship is so big and so full of love that like it's not distracting in any way. It mm-hmm. just it it works. Um, and I think that's a testament to the actress uh, who played Aurora, but also to Guillermo's writing of this character. Mm-hmm. I read a quote from him in an interview where he talks about Hammer films um, coming out of the UK and he he talks about how at the time that he was working on Kronos, he felt like the genre had been really like dehumanizing that like a lot of the movies that were being made in and adjacent to the horror genre were just sort of like thrills and kills and not really sort of like telling human stories Mm -hmm. which is why you put a monster in a movie right right? what the genre is for um and so he mentions uh terrence fisher and he says like you know this is a man who created good monsters with strange and terrible human beings all around them and that's what i wanted to do in this movie um and i think aurora like falls into that category she's not terrible but she's strange Mm -hmm. right she's sort of um she also kind of exists in this mystical plane like she's the only one who sort of sees her grandfather and isn't frightened by him yeah she accepts him completely she accepts him completely she believes what's going on and yeah i just i love that his intention del toro's intention was to use the monster to talk about humanity and he does it to impeccable effect um so much so that you are sobbing by the time you get to the (laughs) end of the film (laughs) i mean it's just so emotional yeah i mean again it's it's just that like beautiful lyrical bombast where when you kind of realize what's happening and you're taken in by it like it's undeniable. It is sweeping and the music is swelling and there's the, you know, this this confrontation on the rooftop and uh, Ron Perlman and, and Federico Lupe are fighting and the girl is there to bear witness and he, he they, they 
fall off the roof. It's it's a very like Frankenstein esque sort of ending for it this is. this monster. Uh, and then especially when he just continues to say over and over again to kind of reiterate and restate uh, and and really accept his humanity, to reclaim his humanity, uh, just as his name over and over again after the little girl says abuelo. Uh, you can't help but just like feel all of it. It's so it's so moving, it's so emotional. Uh, and it's so earnest in a way that these kind of movies often aren't. And especially with like postmodern horror stuff and like, you know, especially monster genre stuff, like you don't get that. You get a lot of people who are very tongue in cheek about it, who seem to be kind of like afraid of the genre that they're operating in. And that's never been Del Toro from the very beginning here. You can see that he like, he doesn't have it in him to approach this with a sense of irony. It's It's just so just so so genuine for him the closing shot of the film isn't anything monstrous um other than the fact that it's it's deeply sad mm-hmm. um but it's uh Frederico Lupi Jesus Gris in bed holding his hand out silhouetted by light um a wash of light yeah um, his wife holding his hand and Aurora laying on him and hugging him and he's dying. And it's like so fucking wretched. Like it's just, it's so sad and beautiful and um, they're all crying and like I'm crying and. And it fades up to white. Right at the very end, you're you're engulfed in the in the light, in the light. and it yeah. just becomes a a blindingly white screen. This like ascendance in this moment of like death, and that's the end of the monster movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> and it works so like it's the perfect ending to that story. Mm-hmm. I mentioned to you a couple times that I've triangulated something about Del Toro that I, I want to articulate here, which is that. He he quiets all of my sort of like well-matured cynicism and incredulity mm-hmm. um, formally, tonally, with his words, with his images, like using everything at his disposal. He he does such a good job of um, helping me to turn off that kind of like adult cynicism and incredulity and opens up space for me to access like this sense of wonder um, and possibility and he like immerses you in that space when you're watching his films and that feels to me very close to like what I could call like my inner child Like he turns off this sort of adult, like Mm -hmm. hardened cynicism and lets, you know, there be room for this, this part of me that wants to believe in things and that is like, you know, um, 
mystified by things and curious and um and feeling with my whole self and it leaves me in like a place of vulnerability like distinct vulnerability yeah and that's where he tells you this story when you're in that place and you stay with him and his characters in that place the whole time you're watching his films and so like of course you're a blubbering mess by the end of his story because (laughs) like you're you're coming into contact or at least I am coming into contact with like a part of myself that I don't really like activate that often um anymore and certainly that media doesn't activate that often anymore yeah I mean it's it's a part of you that is deliberately kind of like beaten out of you yes you know uh as a brief sort of digression but to your point uh, i know you haven't seen the movie but in the second hellboy (laughs) which i am hellbent on seeing (laughs) hey good pun yes uh we will see it at some point i i I think it's terrific it's it's a a wonderful superhero movie and uh, a market improvement on the first despite the fact that i really like it by any means to your point there is a moment that i think about often in the second Hellboy movie in which uh, Hellboy and his cohort have to fight this monster, this giant uh, plant, this this kind of viney creature that grows out of the ground that, that uh, the, the main antagonist kind of plants in the streets of New York, wherever they are, uh, and they have to fight it. And it's a fun, like cheeky action set piece where they're fighting this big CGI monster. But in the midst of the telling of this and the like understanding what it is and how to defeat it, there's a little just like seed pun intended planted that we learn that this creature is of this ancient species and that it's one of the last of its kind. And then they defeat it because they have to. And in the aftermath, there is this very vividly rendered explosion of spores that looks like a snowfall. And you're left with this moment where in the death of this thing, these characters are engulfed in this kind of like wintry, kind of brilliant, aesthetically pleasing scene. And you just have to kind of carry the weight of knowing that the heroes have killed off a thing that didn't deserve to die. Uh, And it gets you. And he's able to do that in, in, you know, a a, a movie where Ron Perlman is in like red prosthetics and shooting a, a, a shotgun the size of like my torso, you know, that's, that's his power as a, a storyteller is that he just finds those little moments to just pierce your armor and and just like lives there and that's where his stories exist i'm so glad you mentioned that because this ties beautifully into a quote from del toro that i wanted to read um for us to close on because i think it articulates why i personally am so drawn to his stories um and why i think we're drawn to stories in particular from filmmakers like him in the 90s 
um, because we don't get as much of this thing anymore. He talks about adopting a morally ambiguous position and says not having good and evil divided in such a way that you get black and white, but creating a gray area in which real horror and real fantasy can grow. For example, in Kronos, the good guy executes some actions that are completely reprehensible. In the same vein, one of the bad guys, Angel, is really nothing but an innocent child in a big man's body who has been abused into being a violent thug. And at first, the device looks evil, but when you go inside, you notice another victim, a trapped insect who may be the ultimate victim in this story. And I wanted to read that because... One, I was like, that's beautiful. Keep saying words. <laughs> I could listen to Del Toro talk about movies forever. I could listen to him talk about anything forever. But I also love that he zeroes in on something that we talk a lot about on this show, which is like the place where like really good storytelling happens is amid ambiguity and like when things are not given to us as discrete like this is good this is bad this person is good this thing is bad Mm -hmm. but that real life and also really interesting moving stories operate in the gray areas and when I read that quote I was like yeah, of like, of course I love his movies because they're all that. There's all this like push-pull between like things that feel and look and like behave sinisterly, but also have this sort of like magical possibility to them. And that plant, you know, scene is like the perfect example of like, he's not letting us you know swallow something whole and like say like well I've got that figured out moving on like he wants us to live in this place of just the gray area and and that that is what it's not just what makes for good stories but it's also like where I think the most meaning of anything can be drawn from it's a marker it's an indicator I think of del Toro's just like understanding of the world, you know, I, I, uh, you know, have pause about saying maybe like Del Toro's like particular brand of like socialism that he brings to his stories, uh, but it is that in a way, right? And and with that quote, with that that thought about like the ultimate victim of the story being this insect trapped within the device, he renders these worlds that prepare us for the nuances and for the layers of reality that are in our own world. You know, the ideas that behind these institutions that we deem evil or these acts that we deem evil are often systems that we don't see, you know, that have within them their own, uh, you know, qualities of vampirism, but also victimhood. Uh, And I I think it just prepares you for a a more remarkable and a more textured reality than what most mainstream media does. Uh, I, I think it's really poetic and really wonderful. I'm so glad we watched this movie. I'm so glad we watched this movie. I love it. I love it too. 
uh, Bonafide Masterpiece. Bonafide Masterpiece. Del Toro's made a couple of them at this point yes. in his career. Um, I, I have seen Pan's Labyrinth more than maybe any movie oh, in, in my life. Gut punch of a gorgeous film. It's beautiful. Um, I, I think about it often. I love, 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 love that movie. Uh, but if you haven't seen Kronos, I don't know why you've listened to <laughs> this much of us rambling about it. Uh, you should hunt it down, watch it. If you have seen it and enjoyed this episode, hopefully we've inspired you to uh, to seek it out again and and rewatch because uh, it it opens itself up the more times you see it. I watched it twice in the last like forty eight hours. Yeah. Um, yeah, just a remarkable remarkable movie. Uh, run, don't walk, folks. Uh, by any means, we're going to let you all go now. Uh, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. If you're listening to this, subscribe to the show as well on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Bi-weekly bonus episodes are starting back up very soon. So get in on the ground floor. We're so close, so close to those 50 patrons to get that Discord going. We're almost there. Uh, shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. We love you both dearly. Pop, pop. Pop, pop. <laughs> uh, and we will catch you all the next time. See ya. See ya.